All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Every Thursday afternoon, we're here at the Commonwealth Club for a noon program with my co-host, John Zipper. Welcome back, Michelle. It's always good to be here. It's great to be outside of your house. <laughs> I, you know, because um, when I'm here, I'm actually seeing people, talking to people, and then when I'm not, I'm doing interviews over the phone, uh, and it's a complete different experience, so I'm very grateful for this space. We have a great talk for you today. Our special guest is Dr. Jason Flatt, and he's been here on the program before. We did a great program on aging in the LGBTQ community, but today we are going to get very specific and focus on memory problems and dementia in our community. So let's welcome back Associate Professor of UCSF. School of Nursing Institute on Health and Aging. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Welcome back, Dr. Thank, Flat. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, um, it, you're fresh off the plane from yeah. a, an Alzheimer's Association conference that yeah. just happened. And so we're going to talk about it, some research that you presented there. But before we do that, it's tradition here, so you got to do it. I didn't get a chance to ask you last time. We had a full panel, but you... If you are okay with it, yeah. may you share a uh, will you share a coming out story for us? Sure. Uh, so my coming out story was actually in college when I was eighteen, and uh, so I was sort of going through this process around more of like loving myself, uh, and so I actually went and saw a bunch of movies. Uh, this is how I accepted it. So I went and saw Stepmom. Uh, cried my heart out. You know, that was the, the one with, uh, Julia Roberts, um, Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon. Yep. So cried my eyes out. And then I went and saw this movie, like Mighty Joe Young about, I don't know. I just did this like marathon of movies. Also cried in that one, uh, which was not, uh, rational at all. And then I sort of walked out and was like, all right, I'm gay and I'm going to just like, move on with this and it was sort of you know i think that was at the end of this accepting you know process of at least that i was going to come out um and it was a pretty i would say i've been pretty fortunate i thought that people weren't going to be as welcoming and i was pretty much ready to just like write them out of my life and uh, some fortunately and some unfortunately just stayed. <laughs> so it was good. Uh, <laughs> I think that's yeah. how a lot of us feel when we come out. But I'm glad that Susan Sarandon was a part of your coming out as she was definitely a part of mine. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest crush on Susan Sarandon. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, John. Well, I was, I was tossed to you after a first question. Well, you actually answered the question that I was going to ask, which is, was the, this sounds like it was the the end of something, not the beginning of your, your coming out. Yeah, and I actually was really fortunate. I didn't even think about it. Uh, this was back in the day of, like, AOL chat rooms, and I had actually met an older gay man, and we had a telephone conversation. And sort of he talked with me about... Um, a little bit of my identity and how I was feeling, uh, like in my dorm room one night I talked with him, uh, and he sort of was like, Jason, these feelings aren't feelings that a straight man has. And I can, you know, and that was sort of also, uh, probably shows this connection I've always had with aging and, and linking to it that I had sort of like a, 
I didn't keep a relationship with this person, but he mentored me in this one phone call to tell me, like, it's going to be okay. Um, So I was really lucky to have that. How did you get into the field that you're working in? Yeah. So the field that I... So in high school, also a very challenging time being in the closet, I started uh, volunteering and then working at an assisted living uh, facility in Florida. And I felt like I had the best job that you could have in high school. So I planned the social activities on the weekends. So I was like the fun guy that would come in and do like ice cream socials, coffee talk, uh, sing-alongs, uh, bowling in the dining room where we would move everything out and like do bowling, um, bingo. Uh, and I really connected with the seniors uh, there were people living with dementia as well. So it was a assisted living, but also advanced care facility where they had memory care. And so I really, it was such a, a unique space where I could be myself. There was no judgment. I didn't have to worry about mannerisms or is that too effeminate or, you know, um, how's the tone of my voice or some of these horrible things I was going through high school. So this became sort of like my shelter, but also I connected with the seniors. So it wasn't immediately that I went into that. I was always interested in health, but uh, I sort of had in my mid twenties, I had ended up getting laid off from my job. And fortunately I had applied to a PhD program and sort of had this soul searching moment of like, what's been the most fulfilling work that you've ever done? And it was like working with seniors. Like, so I was like, why don't I research that or do something in that um, element? And then around that time as well, my grandmother was diagnosed with dementia. And so that sort of, I was talking with her a lot. We've lived far away, but I was seeing the daily memory impairment and some of the challenges. And I was like, I should study this and understand more about like, what are the the risks and the different factors? How can we improve her quality of life? Mm-hmm. Um, those aspects. So that's really what uh, drove me to keep doing the work. Can I ask? I'm, I'm assuming she's no longer. Yeah, us. she's she's no longer. Alive. How long did she live with Alzheimer's? Uh, so probably about 10 to 12 years, I would say. Um, this was, uh, so yeah, we had already noticed the early signs of like, so I'll be talking about today, some of these memory impairments, a little bit of the subjective complaints. Uh, we used to just brush it off. It's like, Oh, grandma, it's a normal part of aging. Don't worry about it. It's like, you know, you, you know, it wasn't until it started like, I think when we really noticed was when she stopped paying like her bills and there were some other challenges that we were like, Oh no, um, you are having some major problems. Uh, so, yeah. Well, let's jump into the research that you yeah. did, and we can talk about it as a community. Um, the research that you conducted, I think there, what you did a, a telephone, you know, you, uh, there were about 44,000 participants? Yeah, yeah. So, actually, what this is, is it's data that comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So, what they do is 
states are sort of required, heavily encouraged that each state does these surveys annually for people 18 and older. And they use random digit dialing and they can call cell phones and also landlines. And they're really, this is the goal. This is how our country understands what's the state of health of our country, right? And this is sort of, so it's called the behavioral risk factor surveillance system. And they do this every year. So what was unique is that in 2015, it was one of the first years that they rolled out this unique module that states, not all states had to do it. They could adopt or they could choose to like have this module. So it was called cognitive decline and it asked six questions. One of the first questions asked about, have you been experiencing uh, problems with your memory or confusion that has been getting worse over the past year? And then they asked some follow-up questions about how is that, if you are having challenges, how's it affecting your daily life? Have you gone to the doctor? Some of those concerns. Uh, but what also was unique that year is that states could also optional, but um, ask about sexual orientation and gender identity. So we looked at data from this uh, for nine states that had chose to do it. And um, what really the the thing that really stands out from it is that uh, we had so this was 44,000 people, about 3% of those people identified as a LGBTQ person. Um, 45 years of age and older, uh, for LGBTQ people, they were on average around 62 versus non LGBTQ was around 64. But what was really concerning was that LGBTQ people were more likely to report having, uh, we call it subjective cognitive decline or these problems with their memory that was getting worse. So it was one in seven for LGBTQ people compared to one in 10 for the non-LGBTQ. Mm. Um, so that's, um, and then the other piece that really stood out is for the LGBTQ people that had these subjective cognitive problems, they were also more likely to report having to give up their household tasks. So things like cooking and cleaning and also daily activities like social activities and getting together with others. And this was due to these memory problems and it was higher for them than it was for the non LGBTQ. So that's concerning because it's showing, well, this is having a, a really big impact on their daily lives and affecting how they can care for themselves um, and how they're going, you know, potentially to access resources in healthcare. What about the, their situations and their lives and their their age and the era in which they grew up? I mean, does all of that play into possibly uh, increased levels of yeah? Attention? So the hard part with it is we don't have as much of that information. So mm -hmm. this survey is just one point in time. Right. What we did see, for instance, that really stood out, we were able to look at some of their background. So LGBTQ people were much more likely to report being low income, and this is making less than $20,000 a year. Um, so a huge you know, disparity when we think about economics. We also saw they were more likely to report being uninsured, uh, they were more likely to report identifying as a racial ethnic minority. Um, and then there was also 
an issue around uh, not being married, so more likely to be unmarried and more likely to live alone. So you can see right there, these are all some social and economic risks that make it even more challenging for LGBTQ people, especially people that might be having cognitive challenges. I, I wanted uh, to talk about clinical depression and, mm-hmm. and depression in, in, in general and how um, that was also noted in the research. If led untreated for a long period of time, that certainly could also lead to cognitive mm-hmm. decline. And the thing is, you know, with with mental illness, uh, as a country, we're already pretty bad mm-hmm. at the resources and providing for mental health. But in LGBTQ, not only are the resources low, but it, our ability to even reach out to mm-hmm. someone and, and and understand our own, you know, uh, illnesses or issues, um, the path to getting the help like that. Yeah also is different than everyone else. Yeah, it's building on what John asked about the, you know, the piece around uh, the history, right? And so if we think about LGBTQ people, it wasn't long ago that being, you know, gay or identifying as a sexual minority as well as identifying as trans was considered a mental health disorder, right? So right there with that stigma, we would, um, we can definitely be pretty confident that people would be less likely to seek out mental health care, right? So if you have depression and you've experienced these really horrific experiences with mental health care providers, you're going to be much less likely to go and be like, well, my mood is depressed or I'm having a lot of anxiety or maybe I'm even experiencing PTSD, like trauma from some of these experiences. And if you don't trust your, we know already, if you don't trust your healthcare provider, you're not going to go see them. So we actually, a lot of research has looked at depression as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And we know that you have a two to threefold increase in risk for dementia if you have depression. And that's compared to people without depression. Uh, they're still exploring, like, why? What is going on? It's something, obviously, deficits with the brain. Some have argued that depression is also part of, we call it prodromal. It's like a pre-symptom of dementia, potentially. So when people are getting depressed in later life, it might be due to the actual disease. Um, So there needs to be a lot more work, like, exploring that. And that's why screening and improving the mental health care that we have in our country, and especially for LGBTQ people, is so important. Go ahead, John. What about isolation? Yes. So I think isolation is a... So a lot of the work, and this is prior to really thinking, even as I expanded into what are the needs of our LGBTQ community, is we've looked at social isolation as sort of a risk for dementia. And so you can think about when you're isolated, it's not just its impact on your mood, but it's also the impact on what we call like cognitive reserve, right? So it's like if you're not using your brain, you have a risk of losing some of those abilities. And one of the most complex things that we can do 
is social interactions, right? It's using all your senses. So if you're isolated and not getting that, you're going to sort of, I think of it as like a double whammy of like, you're not going to get that cognitive engagement and you're likely going to have deficits in mood. And so that's really what we're seeing with social isolation is like, you're not going to have a lot of the resources that other people would have um, to keep their brain healthy, but also to even catch dementia early. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was, uh, if you noticed any of it through the research, but if there are differences in um, between lesbians, gays, and transgender, bisexual. We haven't explored that yet. I think, uh, and I'll give the reason why, the numbers right now are a little small, uh, we're, so what we're planning to do is actually combine multiple states. So there's more years. So we're going to have up to 24 states. And then we'll see probably the data um, more than double. So let's say we're going to have 5,000 or more LGBTQ seniors. And then that'll make me more confident in looking at subgroups. And the reason I say I'm uh, sort of being reluctant is sometimes when you have low numbers, the data isn't really reflective. Mm -hmm. And so if you get a finding that maybe is like alarming, I also am concerned about it being stigmatizing for certain groups, right? And saying, for instance, if we came out and said this group has higher uh, subjective cognitive decline, right? Could that actually make that group feel like... What's wrong with me? Why do I have this and others not? Um, so we want to be cautious. Uh, some of the data is leaning. And again, I don't want to stigmatize the community at all. But uh, we have looked at data from the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And um, a researcher, Christina Dragon, published this. And we did see higher rates uh, for trans people who were in CS CMS. Uh, in that, um, so Medicare and Medicaid, um, there were higher rates of dementia diagnoses. Uh, so it is concerning, uh, but before we make any conclusions, mm -hmm. we got to like study it a little more. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Go ahead, John. Uh, just a, a few things from uh, the Alzheimer's Association 2017 mm -hmm. uh, data. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. Um, let's see. Since 2000, deaths from heart disease have decreased by 14%, from all, while deaths from Alzheimer's disease have increased by 89%. Mm -hmm. um, how much of this is from you know, more study and, and better recognition of it? Mm -hmm. How much of this is from people living longer? And I want to then turn that specifically to LGBTQ folks who, especially survivors from, from AIDS and the mm -hmm. HIV plague, maybe weren't expecting to, to even be around at this point. Yeah. So you bring up a great point. It is really about, yes, it, I don't know how much of it is due to the early detection or the, it, it obviously could be a part of our awareness of the disease and now we're checking more, but I still don't think we're doing enough. Uh, but, the big piece is the survival of the population, right? So we see, we call it like a demographic shift. And we're seeing this not just in the U.S. We're seeing it in all developed countries, and we're starting to see it in developing countries. Where there's a major shift in sort of the population getting much older. Right. 
Um, and with aging is a risk for dementia. Um, and if you, some have argued if you survive cancer, heart disease, um, some of the other, uh, um, like chronic conditions, right? You're likely going to get dementia. Uh, but that's not the case for, you know, like it's a risk, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get it. Mm. Um, with people living with HIV and as they've aged, we actually do know um, that HIV is a risk factor for dementia. Mm. Uh, it's a different type of dementia. Uh, so you may see some of the same sort of impact on abilities, memory, uh, some of the other um, thinking and processing. Uh, but this one, they have a name for it. Uh, and it's uh, hand is the sort of the common terminology for it. And so we do see higher rates. Uh, and there hasn't been a definitive reason of like, is it linked with some of the medications that uh, people are taking or is it linked with other issues around the, you know, the disease and how it affects the circulatory system in the brain. Um, and that's still sort of unclear. They, I think our biggest challenge with even dementia is that it's a really difficult disease to study. Uh, the brain is very complex. Uh, for instance, uh, for a long time, they were linking doing work around uh, amyloid plaque, right? So there are these plaques in the brain, right? And they're linked with, they see more of these typically in people with dementia. Well, now they're starting to find through some of the brain autopsies where people are donating their brain um, after they pass away, and they're seeing they have amyloid too, but we never detected dementia. So what's going on? And then with imaging and how it's advanced, they're starting to find this person has amyloid in their brain, but they're not showing any symptoms of dementia. They do well on all the cognitive tests. Um, so it's only one piece of the story. And so we're, we're starting to find more and more out about how complex our brain is. Mm -hmm. um, so if I could jump in yeah, sure. or just continue with that, because so it, it, it what, at least what I'm getting is we're really in early stages of understanding this. Right. Um, and I would think in spreading the news about this, people who've kind of been following news and on, on the developments of science and medical technology, I think a lot of their first responses would be, well, isn't, you know, all the, the cellular manipulation and genetic, isn't that supposed to kind of solve this kind of thing? And kind of an impatience when you're saying, we still don't even understand really what we're dealing with here. Yeah. I mean, there are discovering, so there are medications that work for um, specifically around helping with memory loss for a while. The problem is, is they usually stop working. Um, the other challenge we have as being human beings is we test a lot of this in animals, right? So that's our main, uh, we often use like a mouse model. Uh, and one of our thoughts is like a mouse is very different from a human being. Um, so what works in a mouse is definitely not going to work in us. Um, so yeah, that's you'll never know it. when the mouse stops paying at bills. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I wanted to go back to that because, you know, I'll be honest with you. I wanted to have this conversation 
it, it was personal uh, in a lot of ways. My parents are aging, and, mm-hmm. and then uh, when we did the aging talk and we talked about, yeah, you know, depression could lead to this. I'm thinking about my own life and how I fit into society and all the pressures and oppression as an LGBTQ person of color and what I'm going through. What's what's what is that actually? If if I I am of a higher percentage to at one point in my life experienced you know, dementia. Um, what what does that even look like? What are the signs? I don't I don't know mm-hmm. if enough people know what it looks like, or if it's just for forgetfulness. And mm. I think sometimes we pass that on. And then if you're LGBTQ and you're living alone and you're isolated, um, how do we look for the signs for folks to help you if you're, they're not living with you or they're not family members? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, some of the pieces are going to be when you start, the biggest warning sign is when your memory problems or other thinking aspects start to impair your life, right? So it's not a thing of like, oh, I misplaced my keys, but I'm able to retrace my steps and find them, right? If you can't retrace your steps, it might be a concern, But you also have to think about the situation. What were you doing when you came in? If you were doing a lot of multitasking, putting, you know, moving the groceries, stopping the dog from running out the door, uh, taking off your wet shoes, you know, and you just and the phone was ringing. Yeah, of course, you're not going to remember where you put your keys. Um, So it has to do more with, you know, sort of these. And if you start noticing it's a recurrent thing where it's happening more and more often that's a concern or you have other thinking issues let's say for instance you notice you used to be able to do certain let's say you loved drawing or doing some type of other task and all of a sudden you can't do it that might be a concern right so if you notice drastic changes the issue with most of this is it's gradual right so you might get used to it. Uh, you might start using a calendar more often. You might start writing things down more often, right? But as you start to notice, if it's like you start forgetting to write things down, or you write it down and you lose it, or and it's constant, you know, and, and more of like outside of your normal routine. Uh, the other pieces, and I hate to think about saying this of, A lot of times we almost like stigmatize people because it's like, oh, you have depression. You don't exercise enough. You're not. Oh, you need to eat fish or take fish oil supplements. You need to do this. You need to drink one glass of wine a day. And uh, what have they some of the stuff with activity when they've shown it in animal models of how much activity is required for neurogenesis. They've said it's like been like the equivalent of a marathon. I'm not running a marathon. <laughs> uh, like, so some of these things aren't realistic, right? And so it's like with any type of uh, lifestyle pieces, it's finding what works for you, but also what you enjoy, right? And so the big key is always things in moderation. Um, doing things, I would say, some of the things as um, you get older, you may sort of find. Maybe you retire or you're not going to certain groups. People move away. Um, There's a lot of changes that just happen, right? Maybe you move from a different neighborhood because you can't afford it any longer. Someone sells the building you're in. Um, It's thoughts about always staying connected, finding ways to stay engaged. Um, 
And I think it's, but also give yourself wiggle room. It's okay if you're kind of bummed out that you miss your neighborhood and you're not immediately ready to just jump out and join every group, right? That's okay. But, you know, if you start to notice it's happening for a longer period of time and now it's been six months, a year, try to push yourself a little more to do things. And love, be kind to yourself. Love yourself, right? Give yourself wiggle room. Um, I think when people... I worry that, like, getting too anxious about, oh, I might get dementia, uh, you know, and all that anxiety and stress is also not helpful, right? We know stress is linked with also risk potentially for dementia. So it's finding ways that um, work for you and keeping in mind, you know what's healthful and what's not. And so try to practice things in moderation. Mm -hmm. That's what I would I think that's what's realistic. This is actually personal for me, too. I've got a, a relative in her late 80s who uh, we hadn't really noticed it until one day we heard that she had been driving around in her own neighborhood. She was like two or three mm -hmm. blocks away from her house, had no idea where she was. Yeah. She pulled over to the side of the street and she was telling us this later. She was like, you know, I just kept saying my name over. You know, I'm saying her name over and over. She didn't think... I've got my cell phone in my phone. I could have, you know, in my purse, I could have called someone. Um, she eventually kind of got her bearings and, and headed home and eventually went in to mm -hmm. see a doctor and such. Um, her path now, we're looking at, you know, selling her home eventually and moving into um, not an assisted living, but a senior apartment complex where she will have other people to have interaction with. She's a mm -hmm. widow, or a widow okay. excuse me. Um, so that's kind of one thing that's going to directly address something that a, the doctor's told her is, is important. B, we know she likes that interaction with other humans. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's feeding that kind of yeah. uh, stimulation. But let, talk about some of those other things that can be done. At what point should someone become, frankly, alarmed enough that they do look? I mean, is, you said there are some medications that sound like they, they, don't, they can't cure it. Yeah. What do they do? They just kind of can maybe slow it? Slow the progression of the disease, especially the memory loss. And I think that's something you have to talk to your doctor about and see, like, is it the right one for you? Um, obviously, you have to think about what other medications you are taking, if you have any other health issues that maybe this medication is known to make, you know, have interactions with or make more severe. Um, so, I mean... I think you're right. So part of this is thinking of planning. And that's something our community, especially our LGBT community, hasn't really focused on. We've talked many people didn't plan to live this long. They didn't plan to survive the HIV epidemic or they didn't uh, really even think about it. They may be just focused on their day-to-day, -day, working, surviving, dealing with uh, the landlord or whatever, you know, just uh, living life and doing what they need to and not thinking about, well, what's life going to be like 15, 20 years from now? Where am I going to be living? How am I going to maintain my independence? So some of that requires really thinking about those plans try to set up some plans for like, where would I go? Where would I like to go if I'm not able to stay in my apartment? Um, who can help me? Yeah. Is it a neighbor? Is it a friend? Having like building those relationships. Well, and that's, that's a great area to get into because 
I mean, you know, America is known as being famously youth oriented and California is even more so. And the Bay Area is even more so than California. In that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the LGBTQ community is not is, is not senior oriented. Yeah. And I think it, it lacks a lot of those connections. It lacks the infrastructure. It lacks um, a lot of the expertise just in even the social service people yeah. knowing how to deal with that. So what advice or, or ideas or things should people be thinking about either creating or or educating on or what doing? Yeah. Well, we've talked about I think there's opportunities to leverage more of intergenerational programs. So bringing seniors and youth together. Um, we know that young people often aren't really exposed to people that are in later life, right? And so there's that uh, issue of like not even seeing where the connection is. Um, I think it's also important for uh, people in later life to connect with younger people and learn and and engage and have opportunities to find uh, commonality. Uh, so I think programs like Open House, for instance, has their every year they do an intergenerational trans brunch. Um, it's amazing. It brings uh, trans seniors and trans youth together. And I think there's in opportunities for one building relationships. It boosts people's self-esteem. It boosts your, you know, uh, helps with emotions and loneliness. Uh, but there could also be like service opportunities where you do a joint activity together or start even moving towards um, you may have read a long time ago a lot of places were using a village model and a village model involves people really investing in volunteering and giving to the community and with the thoughts that one day they'll be able to also take when they need it Right. And so it's sort of this service oriented model where people of need are able to rely on volunteers. And then you as a volunteer, as you get older, could rely on the next generation of volunteers. Um, and so our LGBTQ community really needs to think about those type of creative solutions because we don't have the traditional support structures. Many people weren't married. They do not have children. Uh, what we're seeing, you know, with the Bay Area and especially how it's evolved, we have, you know, seniors that have stayed here. And then we have a whole group of people that keeps leaving because either they can't afford it or they're able to move be and move somewhere that's more affordable. Um, and uh, our country's focus on youth and then ageism is just a huge issue. Um, I get this with my own research, you know, where I tell people the type of work I do and they're like, oh, I could never do that. Or like, oh, God bless you. You must have, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> and my first thing is, let me guess, what do you do? <laughs> Global health. And all I think is that's because you like to travel, <laughs> uh, you know, like, like, come on. Uh, so I'm hoping, you know, as as we continue to see our country age and the shift in demographics, even for myself, you know, we're going to have to change how we're doing things and start to go back to this this idea of like our senior community is the group that, 
you know, we use these terms, our trailblazers, our, our Stonewall generation, our group that fought for our rights. They're also a huge source of wisdom and experiences and to help us know our history. And we should be taking advantage of that, but also giving back to them because they have a lot still to give us. And we're missing out on that. So with this data um, that through your research and, mm-hmm. and like a John, John had mentioned, you know, being new, there's a lot that we could do with this data. You know, we just celebrated 50 years, uh, you know, Stonewall, mm-hmm. right? So what does the next 50 years look like? Yeah. And that's, a, you know, so one of the biggest challenges we have is, you know, the CDC was collecting sexual orientation and gender identity as an optional module. But it was optional. It's gone now uh, with the current um, political climate. So the CDC is not collecting that. Mm-hmm. That and then we're seeing, you know, for some uh, national surveys, they are adding it. But these tend to be independent groups that they may receive funding from the federal government, like the National Institutes of Health. But they don't necessarily – they're not guided by mandates from the federal government around collection. Um, and if we don't continue to collect this information, it's like these questions about removing certain questions from the census and adding other ones that are very discriminatory um, – like if we don't have this information, we cannot see how our communities are doing. This is the main way that we benchmark. If we want to see how well are we doing with certain healthcare interventions or changes to policy and different practices and how that impacts health, it's from collecting this data from larger groups and looking at it over time. That's the only way we can really feasibly do it. Um, so it's a huge concern if we're not going to collect that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hopes are to – I'm basically going to be one of the people that's going to collect it regardless if they want to ask it in you know population-based surveys or not. I'm going to try to do my best to get this information. Well, I think the outcome of, the, of your research, uh, the recent one, is alarming enough in which people will want to collect that that and be inclusive of the LGBTQ community. And the follow-up question to that is really, you know, now with, now that we know, right, mm-hmm. out of 44,000 participants, 3% identify as LGBTQ, and uh, the biggest finding is that we are have a higher percentage of, of experiencing cognitive decline versus mm-hmm. our heterosexual, uh, you know, brothers and sisters, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think that that will impact from the short term even – health practitioners yeah. and, and re, you know how we handle uh, so i i think this is just the beginning of the work so our hope is that it starts making healthcare professionals aware that they need to ask this information in their forms they need to be aware that if they have an lgbtq person who's aging coming to receive care that this might be a potential concern 
Um, and we need to keep studying it. So the issue with the data is this is self-reported. For us to actually know risk, we need LGBTQ people to go and get screened. Mm -hmm. So we need them to go and see their doctor talk about these memory problems they're having and do an actual cognitive screen. Because if you can catch the disease early, there are things you can do right? Delaying the progression. You could start making plans so that you're not in a situation where you might have to be removed from your home when you don't want to be, right? So there's a lot that we can do is like advocating for more research, advocating for better care, advocating to train healthcare professionals. But also we're doing stuff here in San Francisco. So we talked about it in that last session, right? We're building one of the first LGBTQ social day programs, right? With open house and on lock. Mm -hmm. So these are the types of programs that we need. These types of centers can support our seniors as they age, but also need more care. Thank you, Dr. Flatt. Um, now it's time for our audience to interact with, with Jason. If you have a question yeah. for Dr. Flott, we have a roving mic. Here you go. I do have a question since you're talking about continuing your own research. Yes. Um, recently I've been involved as my um, spouse has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So I've been looking into it. I find that they have – the newsletter I received this week said that – um, one of the causes is smoking and alcohol. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, and you might be too young to to remember this, but with uh, the the pride parades being supported by Shmirnov and the pride um, parades, people were given packages mm-hmm. of cigarettes that mm-hmm. our demographic has been pinpointed by people that sell cigarettes and alcohol. And that should be something that I think you should include in your research questions. Yes. That could be why our percentage is higher. Well, and that's what we're, I mean, yeah. That was one one of my questions, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. because if you think about uh, social interaction, right, we're still in the era of where LGBTQ people sometimes feel the only place they can go is to a a neighborhood bar, uh, a gay neighborhood bar. To, to interact, to socialize. Well, I think it's thinking about what you're talking about are risk behaviors, right? So these are, and I think of them, not even behaviors. This is how people cope with some of the horrible stuff that they're dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, these, these behaviors impact health. So we know smoking has a risk, not just for cancer, but cardiovascular disease, right? We know alcohol also has some of these. It has protective benefits in moderation, but when you see it in a much higher use and over time, it does damage the body, right? So I think what Michelle had brought up, part of this is we're not doing a good job of mental health care, right? So if we could address some of the concerns for our community earlier on, they would not have to rely on some of these other coping mechanisms. Many people are turning to these because they have not much else, right? My point was actually the corporations were targeting targeting our demographic. Oh, and I agree. You, I definitely I definitely agree the the tobacco company, right? We used to have cigarette packs that were rainbow colors and they were giving them out for free. Mm-hmm. 
um, alcohol the same way, right? They sponsor events. Uh, you get free drinks at bars to taste things and try it, right? So I think that is a we can think of it of other groups. Uh, you know, I think a little bit of the pharmaceutical industry uh, is also in this realm of I'm not always confident that some of the drugs they're making are with people's best interest. You know, I don't want a drug that causes this side effect and then I have to take another drug for that side effect and then that one causes a new side effect that I have to take this drug for, right? And it's like, what am I doing? I'm taking 12 drugs for each side effect um, that the other drug, the first one's causing. Um, so I don't always think that that's also a good way of us providing care to people. And then often we're developing drugs for what I would call is like instant gratification to, you know, dampen down a symptom that you have, right? Rather than teaching you how to cope, let's just take that symptom away. But then we don't know what the long-term health effects of that drug are on the body, right? So that's also a concern that we need to explore. Others have thought about our diets. Our food has really changed over time in, this, in the fact of how it's preserved, GMOs, right? All of these different pieces. There's been not a lot of research linking that to risk for dementia, but we're not studying it over time if we're not collecting the data we can't answer a lot of these questions so that's right. another program by the way corporate <laughs> corporations and their impact on the lgbtq community you pretty much covered all of the alcohol and cigarettes and whatever just as an addendum to that one of the yeah. things that i had thought of recently as that as an elder as a gay elder is that the only place you could meet anybody was at a bar yeah back in the day back of the day now yeah. when you said gay bar are there gay bars anymore we have been assimilated yeah, <laughs> there's certainly a They're yeah. called queer. There's they're called queer many. bars now, <laughs> and that's a huge issue, right? You're losing community spaces where you used to meet, but you're also right that those spaces weren't always the healthiest, right? So it's finding other ways to connect. Um, I think it's those spaces still have value, and it's not to put blame on the spaces you're right that there is some sort of predatory actions towards encouraging unhealthy behaviors um, but our spaces are also useful for building social connections right building support systems these end up being it may be a person you meet once that ends up becoming a lifelong friend that's how most of us met a friend often right so uh, they have value, but you're right. It's a complex kind of like we have to sort of weigh the the benefits and the risks and try to come up with something that works well for you. You, you talk about wanting more uh, research. I think one area that would be interesting to me is in this subset of LGBTQ elders mm -hmm. who are experiencing some sort of memory problems, dementia, et cetera, onset, how many of them did grow up and and were part of the you know the the bar community and and, and others and how many of them were not whether yeah. they were closeted or just that's not their lifestyle are there any differences in in their and we don't and would it really be those spaces there like you could think of someone that's closeted that also used alcohol or tobacco to cope 
right? So it, it, we can't really answer the question. I don't think it's the spaces, you know, that necessarily are causing the health problems. I think it's more about, and I hate to say, but it's like these coping aspects, right? I don't want to even like the, I hate blaming the victim. I think a lot of this is linked to historically the discrimination, the stress of what it was to be an LGBTQ person, right? We do know early on people were being thrown in jail. They were being kicked out of bars. They had to be uh, secretive about their identity. They lost their family when they came out. They lost friends, right? They may have had to leave their church. Um, all of these pieces are very stressful, uh, and how do we expect people to cope with that? And then also there's these aspects of daily discrimination. You're just walking down the street and someone says something horrible to you, right? That's also really harmful. And how do you cope with that? Are you supposed to go and eat a salad? Um, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, those are sort of the, you know, the, the challenges that our community faces. And the issue is we haven't been studying it long enough. So we're now starting to see. And what I, why I'm linking this with this is we see similar risks for other minority groups. So we see African-Americans have a higher risk for dementia. And we also see that for Latinx communities. And we also see it for American Indians, right? So groups that are also sort of vulnerable, stigmatized, discriminated against, we're also seeing they have challenges. And targeted. Yes, these are all groups that have been targeted, right, by... So there's a lot of and we don't know exactly what the what is the one risk. You also see people that have smoked all their life and they live until they're 110. We don't know why. Right. It's uh, some parts unique about who you are and some of your experiences. So we need to study it, though. This is back to the uh, drawing board and the research and data accumulation, uh, particularly if you're doing a phone type of survey Mm -hmm. of the 44,000, how many calls had to be made to get 44? Because people don't pick up their phone or if they they don't recognize who it is, they're not going to talk to you. Yeah. So these are each of the states are doing this. And you're right. The other piece I didn't even touch on is are you going to tell someone on the phone that you're LGBTQ that you don't know? So, but we don't believe that affects the estimates. We actually think the rates for the subjective decline might actually be higher because some of the people that might also have that risk are in, being put into the other group and identifying as heterosexual. Um, the other issue we had with the data, just to tell you the bias that was in it in 2015, they based sex on the sound of your voice on the phone. Yes. They're no longer doing that anymore, but this didn't affect asking about trans identity. They actually asked about those, but the fact that they were assigning sex based on the sound of your voice Thank goodness CDC is no longer following that. But it's a huge issue. So, and this is 2015. (laughs) It's not like, you know what I mean? It's like, really? This is, and uh, across all the states and territories that were participating? Uh, Like, really? 
Um, so there are some concerns, but we, this is the initial steps that we can take to understand what are the needs of the LGBTQ community. So. Great. So you mentioned uh, earlier in your talk about like, you know, social isolation and poverty Mm -hmm. and lack of insurance, you know, all of these factors showing up in the gay community that Mm -hmm. might be showing signs of dementia. What does the data show about, like, genetic components Mm -hmm. of this? I mean, what do you know about that? Mm -hmm. So there is a genetic component to it. Uh, We wouldn't be able to answer that with, you know, the data that we have. The one thing I can say about genetics is, like, it's just one piece of the story. We actually see a lot more is explained by your environment than it is by your genetics in terms of health and chronic diseases. So just because you have carry the genetic marker for Alzheimer's disease, right, does not necessarily mean that's what you're going to get. You might actually end up getting cancer or heart disease or something else, right? Um, and a lot of it has to do with your environment. The one that does really kind of uh, stand out is for early onset dementia. So there is some genetic markers for that. And this is where people develop dementia in their late 40s to early 50s. Um, And that is a genetic one that they can test for. Um, uh, It's not really common. uh, And you would likely know if you had it in your family lineage because you would have been having family members that were developing dementia early on. But there are genetic tests. I, I think there's, for some people, there's value in knowing that. Uh, genetics isn't really something you can change. You might use it to plan for how you might take care of yourself or long term. Um, but as I said, it's not like the full picture of what you're health and your risk for certain diseases look like. So it's really up to you to decide, is this something I want to take advantage of and know more about, or is it something that doesn't, isn't as important to you? When you got all the, sorry, when you got all the surveys back or all the, the, the mm-hmm. report all done, were you surprised? I was surprised about, uh, that the rates of subjective cognitive decline were higher. Uh, I was. I sort of thought that, uh, you know, um, in some of my work, at least here in San Francisco, a lot of the seniors sort of blow it off as like, this is normal, you know, not a concern. So the fact that people were reporting that it was getting worse um, and really, you know, and pointing out that it was affecting their daily lives, that was concerning to me. Mm-hmm. Um and also, this is like nine states, right? So some of the states, it was like Nevada, Hawaii, uh, some in the south. We had Illinois. Um, so there, it was sort of like I didn't see yet any regional differences. But one of the things we're thinking about exploring is like how do policies relate with this? Do you have healthcare policies that don't allow discrimination or – You know, what are some of the protections in place for people? Um, That would be interesting to explore and see how's that linked with, uh, you know, uh, people's reporting of subjective cognitive decline. Because that's, again, another example of stress. 
right? These broader stressors that are impacting people's lives. Any other questions as we wind down our conversation with Dr. Flat? Um, my last question, and we have to, we have a little bit of time for it. We have yeah. five minutes. Okay, is really. I can't help but think so much of it can be prevented if you know, one of the things that I took from reading your research was that you, you can't pinpoint an actual cause of dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, mm-hmm. But yet we we can talk a lot about, you know, the social causes that can impact that can speed it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. I can't help but think about the, the those some of the social causes you can prevent them. Mm-hmm. A lot of of what's stressing us out is we don't have access to basic needs or care like health, you know, affordable health care, affordable housing. Many of us then start to, to stress out or depressed. We we just it's so hard to live. There's so much pressure as an mm-hmm. LGBTQ person. Mm-hmm. You opened up the talk with the fact that you know mainstream media might make looking LGBTQ like we have all this disposable income when a good percentage of us are experiencing poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was just a really long way of asking you, you know, the preventative measures. Is it I feel like it's all political. I feel like we need to be electing folks who really understand this. And if you are an LGBTQ candidate running for mm-hmm. office, that some of this has to be uh, what you're thinking about, even if the policy or, or mm-hmm. legislation you're working on is uh, something like housing. Yeah. No, and I think that's the, uh, yeah. So it's like thinking of, we think of this as like the social causes, right, of health problems. And especially and you see these sort of uh, more elevated or exaggerated in a sense when you're older, right? You can really see them then. Uh, they sort of like build over time. And we need policies that make LGBTQ people feel safe when they're going to seek out health care, feel safe when they know they're going to go and use services, social services, or go to a, a senior center or go to certain places, right? They need to feel safe. We need to feel safe living in our homes, in our apartments, in our buildings, and not worried about discrimination or a neighbor calling you names or harassing you, right? You need to know that you have protection in having a job and that you're not going to have to worry about losing your job and not being able to afford health care. Right. So we need that. We need education. We all need equal access to, you know, education. So one of the biggest things that we at least show right now um, with what we call cognitive reserve is your access to in early life, these sort of um cognitively stimulating but rich educational environments right they build the brain Mm. they help the brain sort of develop and build this reserve right so we need to have uh, high quality education in early life we need access to it though ongoing throughout life Uh, that's important and then the other piece is to allow for people to have access to other resources so that they're not having, you know, mental health care. Uh, that should be a part. It shouldn't be like an option in your health insurance. It should be a major part of, you know, the care that we provide to people. Um, so I think for 
elected officials, they need to be thinking about life course, right? People's life course. Uh, what promotes uh, health, but also thinking about policies that are going to ensure that all of us have access to the same resources and services, right? That's what it really should be focused on. Right. Uh, and right now it's not. Thank you so much, Dr. Flat, for visiting yeah. us here at the Commonwealth Club and sharing your research with us. Um, where can people find the research? Yeah, so you can go to uh, rainbowsofaging.org is our website uh, where we have information on the research that we're doing. Um, you can also find us, uh, Rainbows of Aging is also on Facebook, so you could follow us on there for some of more of the news we share uh, beyond just aging uh, work, we share some political pieces, thinking about what's going on across the country around health and access to care. Um, so you can do that. And I last, I just wanted to give some credit to people. So the major contributor to uh, this work uh, was Ethan Cicero, who is a, a postdoc and a nurse in the School of Nursing, uh, who helped uh, me with the analyses. And then I also had some co-authors. Uh, co I had uh, Nicholas Lambrou, uh, Whitney Wharton, and Joel Anderson, uh, who also helped us with interpreting the data and doing this work. Uh, and then finally, it's the I want people to definitely check out Open House. Uh, uh, Karen Skoltetti there, uh, looking at the services for seniors, especially our LGBTQ community, and thinking about the social day program that's coming. And then, of course, the work with Onlock uh, and Grace Lee there. So definitely check those out. Let's give a great round of applause for Dr. Flack. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to the program. We're here every Thursday. Check out commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for future programming. Next week, we have Carol Migdon. And while we're on this, I mean, somebody who's incredibly sharp and, and staying active. She was saying, uh, can we push the show to 1230 because I'm coming from tennis and I can't cancel tennis. But, <laughs> but Carol Migdon being one of the first out lesbian um, elected officials who served uh, during her time and uh, it's, it's going to be incredible to talk to her about her experience serving and then what she's up to now. So make sure you come back. We'll see you next time.